What is the price of the clothes and the food that we eat every day? Do we consider the impact each garment or chocolate bar we consume, where it came from, and how did it get to be in the store for such a low price? And what is the cost of this environmentally, socially, and who is at the end of this chain? During our documentary series on modern slavery, food and fashion fail, reporters Michelle Michaels, Jodie Sidney, delve deeper into the costs on people, all for the price of a cheap t-shirt and a chocolate bar. We consider the introduction of modern slavery laws in Australia in 2019 and if these changes can improve the lives of those ill-affected by workplace exploitation and slavery. In this series, we will hear responses from businesses, local and international organisations who are trying to make change and a fairer and more sustainable supply chain. On the 29th of November 2018, the Modern Slavery Bill passed both Houses of Parliament of Australia. After receiving assent from the Governor-General, it has now come into a law and effective from the 1st of January 2019. The law could improve labour rights from farms in Australia to garment factories in nearby countries such as Cambodia, Vietnam and West Asia. The human rights groups have said this can encourage better cooperation between businesses, investors and civil society. We will explore these topics in this series and speak to human rights groups, organisations and businesses to discuss what is happening in our consumer world and how this new legislation will affect those people that contribute to our supply chain and many of the consumer items that we purchase in our daily lives. The law is now operating at a federal level for all organisations whose annual gross turnover is more than $100,000. Big companies and public bodies in Australia will have to disclose how they tackle modern day slavery in their operations under law. Activists say it is tougher on business than Britain's landmark 2015 anti-slavery legislation. The world's second anti-slavery law passed in Australia requires companies to be open and transparent in their procurement chains. Some human rights groups and trade unions say a lack of financial penalties for companies who flout Australia's Modern Slavery Act is a missed opportunity. Compared to Britain's law, however, Australia's legislation is stricter on the information companies must provide, and they must establish a central database of their annual statements, so all companies now have to publish an annual anti-slavery statement and report on what they're doing in their procurement chains to make sure that they are not using people who are in the modern slave trade. We are going to hear from Terry Fitzpatrick from Free the Slaves in Washington. He was an environmental reporter for many years before he went into advocacy for modern slavery organisations. So Terry Fitzpatrick from Free the Slaves, he's got lots of really interesting stories to tell and has so much knowledge about modern slavery. Movement for the abolition of slavery began with the French Revolution and the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen Article 1, which declares inter alia, 
men are born free and remain free and equal in rights. Since that time, the rise of the abolition movement has been intertwined with the recognition and development of universal human rights norms. Slavery was an integral part of the European colonisation, but in 1807, the British Parliament made it illegal for British ships to transport slaves and for British colonies to import them. The trend of abolition continued among European nations, and on the 1st of August 1834, the Slavery Abolition Act 1833 UK took effect, having received the Royal Assent on the 28th of August 1833, and abolished slavery throughout the British Empire, including the British colonies in North America, thereby freeing more than 800,000 enslaved Africans in the Caribbean and South Africa, as well as a small number in Canada. The Abolition Act also appropriated nearly $100 million in today's money to compensate slave owners for their losses. In 1840, the newly formed British and Foreign Anti-Slavery Society called the first World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London to mobilise reformers and to assist post-emancipation efforts throughout the world. In 1865, the US Congress gave final passage and sufficient number of states ratified the 13th Amendment to the US Constitution to outlaw slavery. The amendment reads, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Through the late 1800s and early 1900s, the abolition of slavery gradually spreads and increases throughout the world. In 1919, the International Labour Organization is formed to establish global labour standards, and in 1926, the League of Nations adopts the Slavery Convention, which defines slavery as a status or condition of a person over whom any or all of the powers attaching to the right of ownership are exercised. In 1930, the United States Tariff Act was enacted and prohibited the importation of products made with forced or indentured labour. In 1997, the Sanders Amendment clarified that this applies to products made with the forced or indentured child labour. The United Nations was established in 1945 with the protection of universal human rights as a core objective for establishing global peace and security. On December 1948, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is adopted by the international community, thereby establishing a new global standard in human rights protections. In 1949, the Convention for Suppression of the Traffics in Persons and Exploitation of the Prostitution of Others was adopted to prohibit any person from procuring, enticing or leading away another person for the purpose of prostitution or use, even with the other person's consent. And this, the legal basis for international protections against slavery, is still used today for all people. Modern slavery has been identified in every country that has looked for it, including nations like Australia and the United Kingdom. According to the International Labour Organization, the ILO, globally the forced labour workforce is estimated at more than 21 million people, the equivalent of three in every thousand people being forced to work. Almost 19 million victims are exploited by private individuals or enterprises and over 2 million by the state or rebel groups. About 4.5 million of those victims are forced sexual exploitation. It annually generates illegal profits of US dollars of 150 billion. The Asia-Pacific region accounts for the largest number of forced labourers in the world, 11.7 million.
56% of the global total, followed by Africa at 3.7 million, 18%, and Latin America with 1.8 million victims, which is 9%. Domestic work, agriculture, construction and manufacturing are the sectors where forced labour is most prevalent, and migrant workers and Indigenous people are particularly vulnerable. In 2016, the Global Slavery Index estimated that 45.8 million people are in some form of modern slavery in 167 countries. I'm speaking with Terry Fitzpatrick, the media and advocacy officer from Free the Slaves in Washington. This is a continuation of the interview. Terry Fitzpatrick was an expert in the area and has been a media person for many years and an advocate with Free the Slaves. And he speaks in depth about how slavery affects the populations and people and what countries are doing about it to try and amend the wrongs that modern slavery has enforced on its citizens. The anniversary 150 years of the abolition of slavery was also celebrated last year in 2020. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. That's what President Lincoln once wrote. Honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of Earth. Mr. Speaker, leaders and members of both parties, distinguished guests. We gather here to commemorate a century and a half of freedom, not simply for former slaves, but for all of us. Today, the issue of chattel slavery seems so simple, so obvious. It is wrong in every sense. Stealing men, women, and children from their homelands, tearing husbands from wife, parent from child, stripped and sold to the highest bidder, shackled in chains and bloodied with the whip. It's antithetical not only to our conception of human rights and dignity, but to our conception of ourselves, a people founded on the premise that all are created equal. 2020 is the 20th anniversary of two landmark pieces of legislation and UN treaties uh, or uh, codes and principles. Yes. One is the Palermo Protocol, and the other is the Trafficking Victims Protection Act in late in 2000, um, in, uh, in what was really a big bang of the reemergence of the abolition movement. Corporations are profiting by this, and I, I'm reminded sometimes there's an old T-shirt from a bar in Alaska that um, called Chilku Charlie's. And this T-shirt says, we cheat the other guy and pass the savings on to you. And that's kind of like the lie of trafficking, right? That we cheat the worker and pass the savings on to you. And so... Um, so the, 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 the companies sometimes are doing this unwittingly. In other cases, they're just turning a blind eye because if they don't know, then they aren't uh, legally obligated to do anything about it. Um, in some cases, there are companies who know exactly what they're doing, and they need to be held accountable and liable for that. And so corporate action to clean up product supply chains. And this isn't just um, manufacturing factories where people are in forced labor. This goes into intermediate components and all the way down to the raw materials, to the like for the t-shirt example from dirt to shirt, all the way to the cotton in what is going into finished clothing. So that's the other area. 
And again, that's a, a, an area for government intervention, but as well for consumer action and social movement building. Because if people are, are given choices to buy uh, slavery-free products and they know it and there's not a huge price differential, people will do that. Um, you see fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate and um, uh, dolphin safe tuna and responsible timber. Um, all of those uh, campaigns are working. Yes. They're some of the initial products that brought ethical purchasing that came into the fore uh, probably in the mid 2000s. I think uh, there was Cocoa Initiative, there's been a yes. whole range and companies, some companies have been corporate, you know, responsibly corporate citizens and, you know, adhered to, you know, better purchasing and better supply chains. Um, so that's really so the, important that the corporations come on board. Yes. So one rule of law, two corporate responsibility and three is community empowerment. It's thinking about how can people who are marginalized, who are disenfranchised either because of gender, or race or class or national status or any other kind of class discriminatory uh, characteristic, how can they learn their rights and mobilize to exercise those rights? And that's where Free the Slaves has subspecialized. Um, we think not just of the individual as a victim, we think of their community as victimized because the conditions that cause one person become vulnerable usually affect everyone in their family, their siblings, their cousins, their neighbors. And so if you don't come at it from a community or a village or neighborhood standard, then if you liberate someone, someone else will just take their place. And so because they can or they're likely to fall back into slavery at some point in the future. So it's looking at the root causes of why are some impoverished people vulnerable to slavery, but other impoverished people are not. Because while it's true that most people who are enslaved are impoverished and come from economically uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, not all poor people are in slavery. And so there's a special set of circumstances that go along with the, this lack of empowerment and, 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 and uh, economic resilience that we have specialized on working at. So community and, and um, building up the, uh, the, the wherewithal for villages and neighborhoods and families to protect themselves, and then rule of law, and then corporate action. And those that's kind of the, this, my view of how we can squeeze modern slavery out of existence. And you've got a leaflet, I found a leaflet on the Free the Slaves website, um, Community Liberation Initiative, that's catalyzing a civil, a, sorry, civil society movement against slavery. <clears throat> That's something that your organisation has put together, which is basically just, it's got the four strategies for sustainable freedom here. And it is, it's about sustainability, isn't it? It's about empowering communities, educating communities and people who are marginalised in developing countries. And I think it's really important that people understand that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's complex. It's a very complex issue. And you're, as you're saying, are you doing education programs? Is Free the Slaves actually advocating? And I know you're advocating. Are you um, initiating education programs as well? Yes, we, so we work on three levels. One is we operate grassroots field programs in cooperation with local community organizations. So while Free the Slaves has an Indian and Nepal program, or we're just left right now in Senegal, we're between grants, shall we say, and in Ghana and in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, we've worked in the DRC in Africa as well as in Uganda and in Brazil. So we've had different programs at different times looking at different types 
of slavery. But the thing that is um, that holds the whole thing together, our model for this grassroots intervention, is that we don't just parachute white Americans into villages in the middle of developing countries and say, we're here to save you or to rescue you. We instead, our teams are all from the countries in which they work. And they actually are just helping manage and um, do uh, technical support and knowledge transfer to local community groups who are already working in these villages on all sorts of other things. And we said, you know what? It'd be really good if you worked on human trafficking at the same time. And so we run programs that then come in and ask villagers, do you want to try to change the way things are? And then if the answer is yes, we help educate people about their human rights, their labor rights, their women's rights, their children's rights, their migration rights, and then build a sustainable infrastructure in the way of women's committees, children, child rights committees, parents committees, like neighborhood watch committees to watch out for traffickers who might be preying in a particular area. And so we come in and help mobilize the community, educate the community that this is actually illegal what's been happening to you. It's not just the way it's always been and will always be. And if you work together collectively, you have power and you might be able to change things. And that's the grassroots model that we work on. And how is that, how is that gone? How is that effectively on the ground? How successful has that been? It's been marvelously successful at pilot scale um, because we're a small organization. We only have about 20 staffers and a, a couple million dollars to US for our field programs. And so, but over the course of our history, and Free the Slaves is also 20 years old, but by the way, this is your anniversary. Um, this yeah, year, this year. Too, it's our anniversary year. And so we've liberated 14,000 individuals and we've helped educate 650,000 people plus, more than that, but these, these are numbers we know, hard fixed numbers, and helped put 300 traffickers in jail. So we feel that from a group that had actually a much broader agenda when we started um, than just this community um, work, that we've had some enough success to show that this model is valid and it works. And that's the second step for our community liberation initiative, is to now figure out a way to scale that up. And so our solution is to try to persuade the large international development organizations and funders. So um, in the US, that's United States Agency for International Development, USAID. Uh, in Australia, it'd be AUSAID. Or in Britain, it's called DFID. And to, they fund all sorts of interventions in developing contexts now. And this is from water and sanitation to vaccination, to microenterprise development, to civic participation. But they are already have thousands and thousands of mobilizers who've already built up rapport, understanding, and, um, and, and a, a positive momentum in communities on all sorts of international development initiatives. And we think that if they would just integrate some anti-trafficking activities into, this, into the work they're already doing, we could exponentially scale up the impact of anti-trafficking community-based programs. And we, we try to, to approach these organizations, and this would be large groups like CARE and the Red Cross and um, International Rescue Committee and, you know, like household names that we know of um, that do international development work and sometimes humanitarian relief. And that's actually a big 
um, um, opportunity at the moment. And we, we, I, I, when I speak to them and I speak at conventions and trade uh, gatherings, uh, convenings for the international development movement, and I say, uh, imagine 20 empty seats on opening day at a school. What a waste. How did that happen? And the answer is, I asked them to go through the story with me. So let's say you get a grant from an aid agency to build a school in the Congo. What's the first thing you do? You go and find out how many school-aged children are there. How much school do we need? So you do the census, say it's 100. Five months later, you've built the school, you've hired the teachers, you've trained them, it's opening day, it's ribbon cutting day, and 20 seats are empty because those kids are in the mine. Or in other places, they may be in a factory or on a cocoa plantation or out on fishing boats or whatever it is. So if you had integrated an anti-child trafficking activity into your school building activity, you wouldn't have wasted 20% of the money that that aid agency gave you because you wouldn't have empty desks and you would actually reach all the potential beneficiaries or whatever it is you're doing. And this is true for all sorts of other interventions and trafficking kept away from those programs. So you need to put incentives for people to take their children out of slavery, really. That's an incentivizing sort of action, isn't it? also work with developing countries' governments to be able to achieve these goals. Obviously, you can't go into a country without some sort of approval to have authority to do these programs. I've noticed that on Free the Slaves website... Well, we work in countries where we aren't legal. So how do you get in and is that dangerous? How, I mean, on the ground, how dangerous is it for your staff and how is it working with governments of the states? How much success have you had? working with those countries, you know, particularly look at Burma and Bangladesh, where it's, it's really endemic slavery. It's, it's so historical. How dangerous can it be? Oh, it is. It can be very dangerous. And this is part of why we work at the community's own pace for our work and don't ask people to take risks they're not willing to take themselves. And, um, and I've been in communities that have uh, are very closely watched by the guards the, of the brick kiln factory, for example, and and they're armed. And they look at me askance when I come with my camera. I've had some close calls in that regards. And, and there have been people who have, unfortunately, lost their lives in liberation operations. And people have been beaten in villages that have been burned down. Violence, this idea of kept in place by violence, either implied or actual, is not just a legal construct of what makes it slavery. It, this idea of using force and violence to keep people in place is very real. Our group hasn't worked in, in Burma or Bangladesh, so I don't have experience with those governments, but India is a place where uh, there's great denialism that that modern slavery exists or that bonded labor, the bonded labor it's system it's your fighting is, tradition, is actually you? slavery. Yeah. yeah, well, the government denies it so that they don't have to then do something about well, it, it. 
it essentially and, holds the economy up, doesn't it? Really, when you when it's systematic and it's it's actually boosting the economy, it, it's very hard to get governments to adjust, like you said, their legal regimes to address it, isn't it? It is, but th there is some hope now because there, the United Nations, three years back, approved the Sustainable Development Goals. And these were to replace the old Millennium Development Goals. And one of the new goals to achieve by 2030 for the world is goal eight, decent work for all, and target seven, an end to slavery and child labor, uh, which is a different legal category, but also exploitation of children, uh, child labor by 2025 and slavery by 2030. And so the governments of the world have agreed to do this. That's a UN works on consensus. This is an enacted agreement of the Security Council, actually the General Assembly. And so now there's something called the Alliance 8.7, which is actually working to try to get governments to make good on their promise to do something about this. Yes. And you also, you've also seen that there's a, a report that comes out every June from the United States State Department called the Trafficking in Persons Report, the TIP Oh, I saw that on your website, yes. It grades every country in the world by a one, two, or three tier status. One, they're doing what they should be doing. Two, they're not. And three, they're not even making an effort. There are definite incentives for countries to not find themselves on the tier three list. It will increase the, the rate they have to pay for to borrow money as a nation. It will prevent them in some cases from actually exporting products into the international global trade system, or they'll be kicked off of the like favored trade status treaty sta um, status for their exports. There are countries that are understanding that they need to do something about this because the world has woken up and there are people working on the legal and regulatory incentives to get governments to, to do something about it. Now, there are some countries that are completely irresponsive to those kinds of treaties, Russia, North Korea, Yemen. There are some special circumstances where they're not part of international trade in, in a big way and there's no, there's no incentive through being viewed as good actors. For much of the world, there, there is progress in this regards to try to catch up that rule of law and economics, um, the corporate action side of the equation and not just trying to solve it, by organizing, mobilizing people. Uh, you can't just do it from the direction we do it alone. I argue you can't do it just by policing your way out of this. You can't just do it by trying to force companies to fix it. You have to all work together. I've read some suggestions that it's possible for companies to be able to put their profits back into um, you know, initiatives that are supporting developing communities. They can put some of their profits back into the community. So there's some action there for corporates to take. We haven't worked so much on that corporate action side. But one thing we do talk about when we do talk to corporations is a principle that we say is going beyond compliance. There are laws that are popping up and California has a Transparency Act and Britain has one as Australia does now too. Um, the Netherlands is working on one, Canada is working on one. The French have actually taken a completely different and in my view, more enlightened and rigorous um, approach to um, corporate regulation and incentivization. Um, so there's a lot of these um, uh, modern slavery acts that are showing up um, around the world. And what we do when we 
talk to companies that ask, well, what are we supposed to do about this? And we say, well, first off, don't just hire a black hat lawyer who will teach you how to get around the law or to just cooperate and tick the right boxes with the law, but actually think about um, investing in the communities where your workers are, where your suppliers are, because you're already investing in the communities where your business is located. You're um, giving money to the opera or to the children's sports programs. Um, so think about your your workers as well. And in many corporations um, support programs where they have major factories and, and other things, and they want to be seen as a good corporate citizens. And so we're just trying to get companies to think a little more broadly about what that means. Um, and so if you support schools and if you support, that goes a huge way to an educated child is an asset to the family and not necessarily a liability if they are in financial difficulties. So schools and education, it goes a long way. Also helping to set up microenterprise development programs where people can get micro loans or just seed capital to for animal husbandry or to build welding or hair keep, hairdressing or tailoring or furniture making or other small businesses that create economic resilience, and then helping to um, community savings structures, savings and loan clubs, so that people can pool their money together. And these are often the women of a village. And yes. then if someone is in trouble and needs to borrow money because either their business is in a down cycle or something has befallen their family, a road accident, a medical emergency, and they don't have health care or health insurance, they can borrow from the community and not from a factory owner or a mine owner or a plantation owner who will then have them work it off in debt bonded. Yes. So if companies would just invest a little bit in places where a lot of their raw materials come from, you can get a lot of bang for buck, so to speak. Does Free the Slaves help initiate those programs? Do you have any examples you could give us about those types of programs where communities have been empowered on the ground? Well, we do know that there's a lot of um, investment by the chocolate industry in Cote d'Ivoire and parts of Ghana. And there have been a lot of school building and educational efforts for children to try to prevent child labor and forced child labor in the cocoa sector. And so that has happened. It's not a success story yet because the economics of the cocoa business has not yet led to higher gate prices, as they say, and money actually filtering into the small landholders who are the ones who are using informal and child labor the most. Again, the investment by corporations is necessary, but not sufficient to get it all done. So um, so we've seen that uh, Free the Safe serves on the board of the International Cocoa Initiative, which is together a kind of consortium of the major chocolate manufacturers. And so they've been investing heavily into schools and education. On the government side, we run the Child Protection Compact in Ghana, which was an infusion of money and government attention for, um, uh, to work on child fishing slavery in Ghana. And this was an agreement between the United States government and the Ghanaian government. So it has several elements about training police, making sure that uh, liberation raids happen, then making sure there's shelter infrastructure for kids coming out of enslavement to um, get medical, psychosocial, um, all sorts of uh, remedial education so they can re-enter schools at an age-appropriate 
level, um, as well as all of the community education and rights education, um, this, things that we've been talking about. So there's been governmental action in some areas. Uh, the U.S. has similar child protection compacts in the Philippines and in Jamaica, and um, I think another one will be rolling out this year. And so, um, so there have been real um, ideas of trying to surge resources and attention at government to government level and make things happen. And our colleagues in the movement, groups that work to specifically on this, like Made in the Free World and Verite and Know the Chain and Goodweave and other organizations are working on a lot of the corporate action side of it. And other colleagues that work on Human Trafficking Institute and International Justice Mission, they've now subspecialized in the rule of law side of this. An interesting thing that's happened, and this is a big challenge as the movement has hit its 20 year birthday, is there was there were only five or six groups when this all started back around 2000. And now there are 3000 organizations working on modern slavery around the world. It's and really encouraging. It, it is, and scary, because there's a lot of people doing the work but the money hasn't necessarily grown exponentially to fund all of those yeah. organizations. There is competition, and by nature, everyone has had to subspecialize. So when Free the Slaves was founded, we had four key pillars. One was wake the world up through awareness. Two was galvanize governmental response. Three was create academic quality bodies of evidence so we knew what was happening and wouldn't just be considered NGO propaganda, but it was actually peer-reviewed level scientific sociological research and economic research. And four was this community development approach that I was talking about. We've, we, we don't do awareness raising any longer just for the sake of awareness raising. The world has kind of woken up to it. So there's still awareness about the nature of this, that it's mostly labor and not sex trafficking. Um, it's 21 million in forced labor, 4 million in sex trafficking, and 15 million in forced marriage. So there's awareness about where it's worst, how the types of, of slavery, but we used to have full-time attorneys on our staff that did nothing but lobby on Capitol Hill in the United States with the U.S. Congress. We don't do that now. We work in consortiums and coalitions. The universities of the world have are definitely, there are peer-reviewed academic journals. You can now get a master's degree in human trafficking studies. The university systems have woken up. In one case, we can say tick, tick, tick. Some of these initial things we wanted to accomplish have happened. That community side of it, is where we've now subspecialized. And so that's true for some of the other groups and everyone has found their piece of the work that needs doing, but we have this challenge about coordinating all of that activity now. You're with Michelle Michaels. You've been listening to the documentary, Modern Slavery, Food and Fashion Fail. And thank you to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for supporting this project. I'd like to thank local Byron musicians, Cody McCarthy, for his track Wind Chimes, which has been played in part of this documentary, and to Manasa for his beautiful classical guitar pieces. Manasa is also a local Byron Bay musician. And we'd like to thank Bay FM for all their support.